Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. We need to change the way we think about infrastructure in America, says Rob Puentes. It's not just about the federal government fixing roads and bridges anymore. In this podcast, Puentes explains how our states and metropolitan areas, through public and private sector partnerships, are moving forward on the nation's infrastructure goals. Rob, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about infrastructure. Uh, First, uh, could you define what is infrastructure and why does it matter now? Yeah, it's, well, it's mattered for a long time um, in the history and the development of the country. It obviously matters an awful lot to the American economy. Um, it's, I think it's pretty intuitive um, to understand the, the need for our roads, our bridges, our transit systems, our energy equipment, our water systems. I mean, all of these things are part and parcel of how we live our daily lives and how the economy moves. Um, you know, it's also important now, particularly as we have this larger conversation around jobs and the American workforce. Um, we asked a simple question a few weeks ago. Was, well, well, who's employed in infrastructure? How many people in the United States are employed in this? And because we had never really defined it and we had never really counted up the number of jobs. And so we did that work here. We found that 14.2 million people uh, in the United States are directly employed in infrastructure occupations. Not the guy who's you know cutting the hair or the guy who's doing the work, but actually in, in infrastructure jobs themselves. Some of it is construction. That gets an awful lot of attention. Um, but an awful lot of these jobs are in operations. Um, it's folks moving goods around the country. It's in driving the buses. It's running the water facilities. Um, it's stringing up the telecommunication lines. So there's all kinds of these jobs around the country. But because we had never defined infrastructure before and because we've taken a limited kind of a fr- approach to it, thinking it's, it's just roads and bridges and transit, it's actually much broader than that. It's a whole bunch of different systems all scattered throughout the country. Now, why does it matter that more people in infrastructure jobs are involved in operations than in actually building things? When it comes to infrastructure, we've always associated it with jobs. Um, Ronald Reagan talked about it. George Bush talked about it. I mean, all the presidents just kind of always connect infrastructure with jobs. And then the more federal spending we have, that equates to a certain number of jobs. And that's been the very simple calculus for a number of years in this country. And uh, we're trying to redirect that because, you know, even when we had the stimulus conversation, clearly we needed to do something. We were hemorrhaging jobs in this country. uh, And the federal stimulus package helped to stabilize and to put people to work for some of these, quote unquote, shovel ready jobs, things that they could do today. But we need to understand that infrastructure jobs are much broader than that. Um, And it's not just something that we can address through short term infusions of money but these are long-term, stable jobs that pay good money over a long, long, long period of time. Now, you wrote recently with Bruce Katz that uh, 63,000 bridges are structurally deficient, 240,000 water main breaks occur each year, and 43% of low-income households have access to high-speed broadband. But then you said that's not the real crisis in infrastructure. What is the real crisis? I mean, let's let's be clear. There's there's obviously stuff that we need to do. We need to rebuild the infrastructure that's in place now. Some of the stuff has just reached the end of its useful life and needs to be addressed. And so there's there's that's certainly a problem. It's certainly something that's well known. The challenge that we have is that we keep looking to the federal government as the only source uh, responsible for fixing some of these problems, and it gets a lot of attention. And just recently, we had the president talking about infrastructure. You had the vice president talking about it. You know, this is something the Congress you know drums up every once in a while. 
but we overemphasize the role of the federal government when it comes um, to fixing our nation's infrastructure. And that's the real problem we have in this country. Even though the federal government does spend, you know, it, it, I mean, $100 billion in things like transportation and water, traditional kind of public works projects come from the federal government. And that's, that's a lot of money. But that's only about 27, 28% of all the money that's spent on those two um, infrastructure sectors. So much is coming from the, the states, from the localities, and a lot from the private sector. There are things like freight rail and telecommunications and energy. A lot of the things have nothing to do with um, federal money, although there's federal regulatory oversight for a lot of these things. But most of these things are driven from, from the bottom up or from things that have nothing to do um, with the federal government. So that's what we're trying to do is to reframe that conversation so we're not overemphasizing what Washington can do, particularly in this time of drift and dysfunction. So uh, thinking about s states and localities, how uh, generally do they fund their infrastructure projects if not from the federal government? Or, or are they still reliant to some degree on federal government financing? There's no doubt that in some areas like, like transportation infrastructure, that the federal share is important to states. And we're talking about billions of dollars. So you know, any, any kind of hit is going to matter to these folks. Um, but we got to get back to this definition of infrastructure. There's transportation which is not just roads and bridges, but transit and aviation, waterways, all kinds of different things. But there's also water infrastructure. There's telecommunications infrastructure. There's energy infrastructure. Um, there's trade and logistics as a separate sector of infrastructure. And then there's public works, landfills and, and, and traditional things in and around cities that are a separate sector. So when you think about infrastructure broadly, um, you start to, to understand, well, where's the money from the federal government going? Again, for transportation things, it, it, it matters. But for some other sectors, it really doesn't matter that much at all. So the states and localities uh, are also responsible in some ways for some things, but they're not responsible in others. So do you think, uh, looking at the landscape of what states and localities are doing, that uh, they're making the right kinds of choices? Or, or, or if you will, which kind of states are leading the way in good infrastructure management? The states are probably a mixed bag when it comes to, to infrastructure. There are some, some that we look at, we call them can-do states, with quotes around can-do. Um, that, that, that there are states who have recognized there's no cavalry coming for the things that, for, that they've normally relied on the federal government for. And so they're going out and they're crafting their own solutions for how we're delivering projects here uh, in the 21st century. They're working on uh, new kind of partnerships with the private sector. They're going directly to voters in a lot of ways with the ballot box referendum, which are passing at a pretty, pretty uh, impressive clip. 75, 79% of these things are passing, um, mostly for transportation. Um, or they're passing things through their legislature. They're raising their own gasoline taxes in places as different as Wyoming and Maryland. A conversation which is politically toxic on the national level is something that these states are doing. I think New Hampshire is another one just recently with, with, you know, with surprising regularity. So lots of different solutions. Lots of different states taking lots of different approaches. You know, it's a big country, um, so it looks different in different places, but, but we're encouraged by what we're seeing out there. What about states that need to uh, collaborate, say, with other states? Now, I live in northern Virginia. The Capitol Beltway runs around in Virginia and into Maryland, and it seems like any kind of infrastructure project that affects that kind of has to cross jurisdictional lines. We can think a lot about these, these cross-border things, particularly in the northeast where the states are much smaller and you really have a lot of that cross-border stuff going on. But we're seeing really interesting collaborations in on the West Coast. There's something called the West Coast Infrastructure Exchange, which is a collaboration between California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. Um, 
in Canada, which is so they're trying to figure out how they can boost the market for uh, for private investment in infrastructure by creating a pipeline of projects so the private sector knows, here, well, here's the menu, makes like a cafeteria kind of menu of what's going on, um, setting standards so the private sector knows, well, things aren't going to change from state to state or project to project, and making it all very transparent so that in case there are problems, it's all front and center. The public sector knows what's going on. The general public understands how these deals are being made. And so these things that are happening in the West Coast with this exchange are really important lessons that we'd like to see replicated maybe in the Great Lakes and maybe here in the Mid-Atlantic um, for, your, for your example. So one of the great success stories of the federal government uh, in the post-war period, and actually as defined by uh, Brookings Project some years ago, is the building of the uh, interstate highway system. Uh, which I think was a, a federal government-funded and, and executed project. But now we're looking at a lot of public-private partnerships. Now, is the involvement of the private sector, A, a new thing, and B, how necessary is it? In a lot of ways, I'd say that some of the, the private sector conversations are going, this is all about back to the future in some ways, right? That uh, this is how we've built a lot of the infrastructure um, in this country. It's nuanced. There's lots of different stories, but things around the railroads, things around the electricity, um, that there's always been um, a different kind of relationship than I think that started to emerge, particularly after the, the interstate highway system. That's a great example of where the federal government had a very clear role to play. They set out a very clear vision for what they wanted to accomplish, um, had rationale for it, economic, social, defense, military in some ways, and then set out a way to pay for it by raising the gasoline tax. So that took that was in the 1950s. We set off doing that. We built the interstates. They were the envy of the world over. Um, and now that era is over. We've got to fix those interstates because, as I mentioned, they were reaching the end of their useful life in many cases. So we've got to reinvest in the system, not something we do a great job of uh, in this country. But then we also then need to figure out the, what, is, what is the federal government going to do now? Do we just keep investing the same way? That doesn't make any sense. We've got to figure out what is the same kind of economic rationale on the national level. And where should the federal government be present where now they're absent? And global freight is a great example of that. Um, obviously, with the economy globalizing at a tremendous rate and much more exchanges happening between metropolitan areas, there's a clear role for the federal government to start to lay out uh, more direction for, for metropolitan areas so that we're not engaged like we are now with this arms race up and down the east coast of the United States with, with expanding ports, dredging harbors in order to accommodate these large ships that are going to start floating up in the Panama Canal once that thing gets widened. The federal government should probably provide some kind of direction so that we can uh, understand how does freight move globally, and then what should the, federal, what should the national role be here uh, in the United States. We're one of the only industrialized countries on the planet that doesn't have a comprehensive freight agenda. That's something we have to work on sooner rather than later. And does global freight include uh, the ports, or is that sort of a separate category of things that either the federal government or the state, say, the Port of Charleston, uh, is more involved in? No, freight includes everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's the ports, it's the maritime ports, it's aviation, it's trucking. Um, I mean, aviation is, is really left out. And we looked at a place, some re work we did at Brookings last year with my colleagues, Adi Tomer and, and Joseph Kane, looked at um, what, what's happening, what's economically happening in these regions and what's going, what's being moved from place to place. A place like Minneapolis is a great example where they have a large share of their economy focused on very high value, very low weight goods. So clearly the airport matters a lot to Minneapolis. We're sending those goods you know, by, by, by air in many cases. 
So when they start to think about, well, what does the freight network need to look at? Well, maybe they don't need to think about the truckways that they're thinking about, or maybe other things may not be as important as making sure that that airport um, is functioning because it's clearly connected to the metropolitan economy there. So thinking about the private sector in, uh, specifically, I, one of the ways that you've talked about uh, for the financing of infrastructure projects, especially on roads, is toll roads. And again, in Northern Virginia, we have a pretty new toll road, an express lane on Interstate 495. Uh, I know in Texas, there's another kind of uh, pay toll express lane that's sort of adjacent to the, to the non-pay one. And I've, I've read reports, I don't know how accurate they are, that the, the, the company, which is an Australian company in Virginia's case, uh, is not getting the revenue that it expects from that toll road. And I don't know how the one in Texas is doing. But what happens when private companies come in and build these pieces of infrastructure and, and they don't get the expected return? What's, what's the future of that kind of relationship going to be? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is an experiment that we're going, going through now. There's a lot of churning that's going on. And a lot of interest in lessons like the one you just mentioned with the hot lanes in, in Northern Virginia. So this is all about the sharing of risks and rewards, these engagements with the private sector. It's not, a, it's not free money, right? It's not a silver bullet, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, but these are new kinds of arrangements where we're bringing in private sector capital, but also private sector expertise. And so this Northern Virginia example is a great um, model of where, you know, trying to address tra uh, traffic congestion on the D.C. Beltway is a perennial problem. It's intractable problem, right? So the traditional way that a state DOT might address that problem is, well, we're going to widen the beltway by five more lanes. We're going to knock down 5,000 homes. It's going to take, you know, whatever, 10 years and cost billions and billions of dollars. And at the end of the day, probably really haven't even solved the problem in the first place. So here's the private sector coming and say, well, here's a different, here's a different idea, something that's been, that's been tried somewhere else. We're going to expand the road by only a couple of lanes, with four or five lanes. We're going to dynamically toll those things so that um, you know, we're, we're generating revenue from the people driving on it, and we're going to time that during the uh, uh, during the day based on the real-time conditions. So you pay more if the congestion is poor. So that's a really interesting kind of solution that maybe we couldn't have come up with uh, otherwise. But the important thing there is that they're sharing the risks and rewards. So the the private company came in and said, well, we're gonna, we'd like this as an investment idea. We think we can make money doing this, which is perfectly fine. Um, but we're going to take the risks. And if uh, the, the traffic is low, if people aren't paying the tolls, we're going to be the ones who are going to take the risks in that. And um, you know, if for some reason the company goes bankrupt and the, the, the investment didn't work out, that all gets reverted back to the state and the state then takes it over. And they've got, I mean, not a, not a free road, but this is something that they've got as a result of this deal. So that's the kind of thing that we're trying to figure out. Now, you can structure these contracts between the public and private sector in any way you want. If you can get these two parties to agree, then we should start to explore these things. They're going to look different in different places. Um, and I think we're learning an awful lot, particularly because we've seen these large drops um, in driving. And that might be changing the calculus of the private sector's interest in these toll road deals. As I said, the, the one in Northern Virginia is uh, an Australian company. I believe the one in Texas is a Spanish company. Is that, is that a trend? That, are there U.S. companies involved on, on building and operating these kinds of places? Yeah, in some cases, there. I mean, those are coalitions of these of these groups, and and this is the good thing about tapping into this expertise because the United States has been a laggard in this area for a long time. We've had such a heavy, um, as we said before, public sector role, federal government, state DOTs, things like that. As we're starting to look for for new examples and new innovations, a lot of these things are coming from overseas, um, and you know they they kind of consider the U.S. an emerging market when it comes to investment opportunities here because 
again, we've had such a heavy public sector role in so long. You know, maybe there's some way that we can that we can share these risks and rewards with the with the private sector. Well, let's switch uh, back again to the federal level and, and uh, talk about where Congress is uh, in uh, kind of national transportation planning funding. I know there's a there's a, a transportation bill. The acronym is uh, ICE T. Can you talk about that? So the uh, the ICE T was a was a, a very uh, important piece of legislation in the early 1990s. Um, where I would probably say that at that time, the federal government was way out in front of the states, where the federal government was trying to do what we talked about before, the post-interstate era, what are we going to do? What's the federal role supposed to be? Um, it kind of coincided a little bit with the gas tax increase and a huge um, increase in spending that went out to the states and really kind of redirected the way that we think about the, um, the federal role from just building the interstates to something that was more about a holistic approach to transportation, including transit, including other different modes, um, and then focus on metropolitan areas, which we at the Metropolitan Policy Program think is a, certainly a good experiment to start to look at to figure out how we can address some of these challenges beyond just the interstate system. That was in 1990. Um, we've updated that law a couple of times. Since then, haven't been very many revolutionary changes, but more evolutionary kind of changes. Um, and we're kind of stuck where we are today, which is uh, in a couple of places. One is that the current law which is just a two-year law, expires um, in a couple of months here in, in the fall of, of 2014. But before that, the Highway Trust Fund, which is funded through mostly through the federal gasoline tax, is expected to start to run a negative balance, which it can't do legally, but it's expected to start those going to be upside down sometime this summer, uh, probably sometime in August, when the federal government's not going to be able to reimburse the states for their investments. It's how they it's how they fund some of these projects. And that's a big problem um, because the states are, you know, as I said, they're kind of a mixed bag. Some of them are doing quite well, but they really are counting on this on this money, which the federal government has, has traditionally been a reliable partner with. But as the federal government is no longer a reliable partner, we're going to have to figure out a way that we can patch that trust fund so that the states are not losing these billions of dollars in the short term. I think we're probably going to do that. I think they'll probably figure out a way to move general fund money over. I saw something today. There's maybe something with the Postal Service. I'm not exactly sure, but they'll figure out something creative, maybe elegant, um, maybe head-scratching, but we'll get probably through to the end of the calendar year. After that, I think it's anybody's guess what happens. We're, as I said, we're going through this major conversation about what the federal role should be when it comes to transportation. Um, the funding is obviously a big piece of it, but the earmarks are not, any, are not uh, part of the conversation anymore. That takes away a lot of the motivation from Congress. The gasoline tax as a way to raise revenue is is the workhorse. We think that's probably the one solution to to put more money in the system. That's off the table. Um, you know, things like uh, like a vehicle mile travel charge, where we're tracking vehicles by uh, GPS and then assigning uh, fees to those drivers, has been taken off the table. So we're kind of moving in the wrong direction um, when it comes to looking for the federal government to step up. So all that said, I think there is also a feeling that. You know, in a couple of years, maybe when the new president or something's going to happen, and we're going to get back to where we were before. It's all going to go back. Everything's going to be fixed, and then we're going to go have the same system that we had in the 1990s. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going through a transitioning time here where we're sorting out what these different roles are between federal, state, metropolitan governments, and the private sector, and that something interesting is going to shake out here in the next couple of years. It's not going to be led by the federal government. It's going to be led by states but particularly metropolitan areas uh, and their partnerships all across the country. 
Is there a risk, though, that in this period of sorting out uh, roles and responsibilities, that uh, something will be missed, that opportunities will be missed, that the economy will be damaged? I don't think so. I mean, it's look, it's in an ideal world, we're not celebrating federal dysfunction in this case, right? You, you could really, what you'd like to see is have them raise a gasoline tax, raise it by whatever you have to do, 50 cents, but connect that with a very clear agenda for what those, that money is going for. And it should be going towards investments in the next economy and things like production and things like in, you know, in, in advanced industries and connecting low-income workers to jobs. Not in this interstate era because that, that era is over. We've got to update the entire system to make sure that, that money is being spent to move us in this post-recession environment to something that's, that's more uh, production-oriented, more globally-oriented, more outward-looking as opposed to you know, kind of inward-looking. So without those reforms, we don't think we should be investing a whole lot of money on the federal side. Um, so the danger, I think, would be we're missing some of the, the larger picture stuff, some more of the, the global, as I said, what's coming, the freight uh, movement is something that the federal government's got to be present where they've been absent so far. But I think it would also be wrong to expect the federal government to be leading in this way. States, metro areas, and the private sector where the innovation's coming from. Right, and that goes back to the point you were making earlier about how just the, the fact of the crumbling infrastructure it kind of misses the point of what you and Bruce Katz were talking about. So thinking about that in the big picture, what are some other uh, ideas or solutions uh, that, that you're working on that can ensure adequate funding and good partnerships and the right focus on infrastructure moving forward? I think part of it is is thinking, again, changing the way we think about infrastructure. And maybe, I mean, the word itself actually is a little bit problematic because there really isn't any infrastructure, right? I mean, there are these different sectors. There's transport, water, energy, telecommunications. And I think that might have been some of the problem with this National Infrastructure Bank is that we, we kind of look for these silver bullet solutions um, that are going to come from the federal government. And and it just doesn't. It's very complicated systems, all highly dispersed all throughout the country. So part of what we need to do is be very specific about what it is we're talking about and not be general and talk about infrastructure. So once we do that, then, as I said before, it, comes, it becomes a little clear about who's, in, who's responsible for what. There's going to be some areas like transportation and like water where there's still going to be traditional ways that we're going to raise most of the money through a gasoline tax. I said, through states going to their to their voters for ballot box referenda, um, through things like uh, tax increment financing, um, you know, so there are traditional ways that we're going to pay for infrastructure for certain sectors, and we should continue to do that. There's other places where the federal government, then in that category, probably needs to get out of the way, and maybe do something like remove the caps that exist now for things called passenger facility charges on the airports. So the airports are are capped at how much money they can they can charge. Um, to pay for infrastructure improvements in the airport facility. Let's see if the federal government can maybe pilot a couple ideas and maybe let some some metro areas increase that and to, to pay for necessary uh, improvements. So that's the first category. The second would be then around this whole thing around public-private partnerships. And we've got to be clear that this is not, again, not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. But there certainly is an opportunity here um, that we're not taking advantage of in this country that we've seen elsewhere. Yes, we've had a municipal bond market that's financed for a lot of these, a lot of infrastructure, given the, the favorable tax treatment that, that states and localities have been able to enjoy. But things are changing, and we should figure out what, what the right niches are. The West Coast Infrastructure Exchange is a great idea, and we'd like to see that kind of thing um, proliferate so we can start to understand, well, what is that niche and what can we really accomplish? 
And then the third category are for things that are that are tra- infrastructure areas that are traditionally private sector to begin with. As I said, freight rail, telecommunications, energy, redevelopment, um, you know, land development, uh, real estate in metro areas. These are things that are private sector driven, but are also starting to have more of a public policy focus to them. Um, and so better partnerships on that. There's a CREATE project in metropolitan Chicago where they're trying to free up some bottlenecks there. It's private sector infrastructure in a lot of cases with the freight railroads, but it takes a public sector partner to help kind of loosen up some of those, those bottlenecks. There's redevelopment uh, and real estate deals and things like innovation districts um, in places like New York um, and maybe in, in Houston and Detroit and some other Philadelphia, some other places, which is, again, maybe in some ways traditional real estate projects, but with a public, public policy element to it because we're trying to stimulate um, certain types of growth and development in these, in these cities. So it's this big blending that's going on between public, private, federal, state, local um, that we see shaking out over the next couple of years. And then is there anything we can learn from other countries? You know, sometimes we, we read in the paper a story about the airport or the, the high-speed rail in Japan or China is so awesome and it didn't take them much time to build it. And the Bethesda metro station escalator, it took them a year and a half to fix. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, it, we don't, I think we, we look to China a lot. They say, look at look what China's doing. Look at the tremendous investment in infrastructure they're making. That's fine. I would probably not look to China for the best examples. It's just a very different for lots of different reasons. But um, there are a lot of federalist republics, places like Canada, for example, right up there. We should, don't forget about Canada. It's, they've outlined an economic agenda for the nation, and then they align transportation and infrastructure investments to support that economic agenda. Sounds simple, and that's something they've done nationally. They've done this on, on freight, for example. They've invested in ports on the West Coast and then in rail to move those goods from the West Coast to other parts of the country. It's, it's very clear. It's very rational. Um, and those are really good examples that we can take advantage of. Now, uh, you and your colleagues have just finished this, this examination of the infrastructure jobs that we talked about at the beginning. Uh, what else is next on your agenda? The, the, the big challenge we have in this country today is not trying to decide what needs to be built. And this is very different from what we, I think we saw 15 years ago, where you know, we spent a lot of time working with civic, corporate, philanthropic, political leaders in cities and metros all across the country to help them think differently about infrastructure. For lots of different reasons, I think that that's, that's, that's actually happened. You go to places now, and they know what they need in, these, in, in, in a lot of different cities and a lot of different metros. Um, and for the most part, it's all, it's all pretty good stuff. So the big challenge is helping them understand, well, then how do you get things done in this tumultuous time you know, where, where they're not getting this, the same kind of support they may be expecting, rightly or wrongly, from the federal government or even from their states. So it's helping them understand how do they get the right rules, tools, and put the institutions in place that are going to enable, to, enable them to take advantage of these changes that we're having um, when it comes to infrastructure. Well, Rob, this has been very interesting, and I thank you very much for your time today. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash metro. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast on iTunes.